Welcome to the Flannery Podcast. This is episode 31. The issue, Trump's abuse of power, trying to steal the election. Stay tuned. No doubt you've heard of the notorious RBG. In recent days, we have lost a Supreme Court justice who spent a lifetime fighting for individual rights and liberties, and especially for equal treatment under the law based on gender. On Friday, that is September the 18th, Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away at age 87 from pancreatic cancer. Justice Ginsburg had been fighting one form of cancer or another since 1999. Despite her illness, the justice marched on in court and out of court. Though slight and fragile in appearance, Justice Ginsburg was a woman of indomitable spirit with a solid steel backbone. When Justice Ginsburg attended Harvard and Columbia Law Schools, the latter my alma mater, she excelled making law review at both schools, after which she taught civil procedure at Rutgers Law School and at Columbia Law School. She fought for gender equality and women's rights, won victories before the Supreme Court, and joined the Supreme Court on President Clinton's judicial nomination based on a recommendation by U.S. Senator Orrin Hatch. There are many cases that Justice Ginsburg considered while a member of the court. One decision close to the Commonwealth of Virginia, where I'm speaking now, issued in 1996. It was a majority opinion that she wrote, 7 to 1, in the United States against Virginia Military Institute, holding that VMI had to admit women, ending its 157-year tradition barring women from what had been this all-male military academy. Justice Ginsburg wrote, While Virginia serves its sons, it makes no provision for her daughters. This is not equal protection. When it came to questions of a woman's right to choose what to do with her own body, Justice Ginsburg wrote in dissent that, quote, The court deprives women of the right to make an autonomous choice, even at the expense of their safety. In a voting rights case, Justice Ginsburg wrote another dissent, one of many attacking the court's majority opinion. Throwing out preclearance, she said, when it is continuing to work, is like throwing away your umbrella in a rainstorm because you're not getting wet. Justice Ginsburg once gave an address that summed up her life's work. That's what it's all about, women and men working together, should help make the society a better place than it is now. Looking for that magic moment that turned Justice Ginsburg's attention to discrimination may have occurred when she attended a dinner as a student at Harvard Law School and was asked by the dean, Erwin Griswold, to explain how a woman justified taking a position from a man in a class at Harvard Law School. Years later, Justice Ginsburg explained that part of her work for gender equality arose out of the indignities women suffered at Harvard, shut out of the library, barred from the law review banquet, and denied space in the law school dorms. It was just one more indignity that the dean would ask such a question. As for her justification for taking a space in the law classes from a man, I think her life's work best answers the dean's sexist inquiry. Ginsburg was crowned with the title the notorious RBG, mimicking rapper Biggie Smalls, notorious B.I.G., that nickname, when an NYU law student, Shana Kniznik, 
posted the nickname online to underscore the justice's dissent in the voting rights case I already mentioned. That was it. It went viral, and that's where it comes from, the notorious RBG. When not tap tapping out an opinion, Justice Ginsburg became the heroine in children's books, inspired Halloween costumes worn by young and old, those dolls that were circulated that looked like her. It was a coloring book. She was the subject of a documentary film and the star of a dramatic film bio. As the original Biggie Smalls might say about the justice, if you don't know, now you know. Ari Melba would probably enjoy that line. <laughs> justice Ginsburg did lie and state, a high honor paid only one other justice, William Howard Taft, who was also the president of the United States. The Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Roberts, gave a eulogy remembering his colleague and friend. It's worth hearing what he said. Justice Ginsburg's life was one of the many versions of the American dream. Her father was an immigrant from Odessa. Her mother was born four months after her family arrived from Poland. Her mother later worked as a bookkeeper in Brooklyn. Ruth used to ask, what is the difference between a bookkeeper in Brooklyn and a Supreme Court justice? Her answer, one generation. It has been said that Ruth wanted to be an opera virtuoso, but became a rock star instead. But she chose the law. Subjected to discrimination in law school and the job market because she was a woman, Ruth would grow to become the leading advocate fighting such discrimination in court. She was not an opera star, but she found her stage right behind me in our courtroom. There she won famous victories that helped move our nation closer to equal justice under law, to the extent that women are now a majority in law schools, not simply a handful. Later, she became a star on the bench where she sat for 27 years. Her 483 majority concurring and dissenting opinions will steer the court for decades. They are written with the unaffected grace of precision. Her voice in court and in our conference room was soft, but when she spoke, people listened. Among the words that best describe Ruth, tough, brave, a fighter, a winner but also thoughtful, careful, compassionate, honest. When it came to opera, insightful, passionate. When it came to sports, clueless. <laughs> Justice Ginsburg had many virtues of her own, but she also unavoidably promoted one particular one, humility in others. For example, on more than a few occasions, someone would approach or call me and describe some upcoming occasion or event that was important to them. And I knew what was coming. Could I come and speak? But no, instead, could I pass along an invitation to Justice Ginsburg and put in a good word? Many of you have seen the famous picture of Justice Scalia and Justice Ginsburg riding atop an elephant in India. It captured so much of Ruth. There she was doing something totally unexpected, just as she had in law school, where she was not only one of the few women, but a new mother to boot. 
And in the photograph, she is riding with a dear friend, a friend with totally divergent views. There is no indication in the photo that either was poised to push the other off. For many years, of course, Ruth battled serious illness. She met each of those challenges with a combination of candid assessment and fierce determination. In doing so, she encouraged others who have their own battles with illness, including employees here in the court. And she emerged victorious time and again against all odds. But finally, the odds won out, and now Ruth has left us. I mentioned at the outset that Ruth's passing weighed most heavily on her family, and that is true. But the court was her family, too. This building was her home, too. Of course, she will live on in what she did to improve the law and the lives of all of us. And yet, still, Ruth is gone, and we grieve. Let us have a moment of silence for reflection. When I do these podcasts, I like to give the focus of any comment an opportunity uh, to be heard, uh, because it's different than the printed quote, although I try to include that. I think it's worth hearing what Ruth Bader Ginsburg said about her own career. It's only a few minutes. Listen. Mother said, be independent, and by that she meant I should be able to make my own way in the world, even if I met Prince Charming. Although she died when I was 17, she influenced my approach to life. I graduated from law school in 1959. There were no anti-discrimination laws and employers were upfront that they did not want a woman. And even if they would risk taking a chance on a woman, they surely would not take a chance on a mother with a four-year-old child. My object and the object of the women in my class was to get a job, and that was uh, no mean feat. Judges understood by that time that racial discrimination was odious but they thought that laws discriminating against women were for the women's own protection. So my job was to let the court see that these classifications more often put women not on a pedestal, but in a cage. A man on the train was reading the New York Post. He held it up and I could see the banner headline, Supreme Court Outlaws sex discrimination. I was exhilarated, and it was a great beginning. President Clinton called me late one Sunday evening and said, Ruth, I have chosen you as my nominee for the court. I was on cloud nine. 
being part of an institution that's respected all over the world. It's the hardest and the best job I've ever had. Marty and I were married for 56 years. We met when I was 17 and he was 18 at Cornell University. He was the only boy I knew who cared that I had a brain. I think it's essential if women are to have a truly equal chance. Men must care about their home, their children, as much as women do. I hope people will think of me as a good judge who tried with whatever ability I have to interpret the law wisely and to keep it in tune with the people that law exists or should exist to serve. Now let's consider how Trump and his mouthpiece bar and Mitch McConnell have made things even worse. First, let's nail down the context. On the day that Justice Ginsburg died, in-person voting began in Virginia and many states across the nation. More states have come online since. In other words, the presidential election is well underway. Because of the pandemic badly handled by Mr. Trump based on lies to Americans about its danger, minimizing it, and with millions of infections and hundreds of thousands dead, voters are taking precautions, wearing masks and distancing, and taking the greatest precaution to avoid infection, asking for and filing absentee ballots by mail, and sometimes in person. Trump has done what he could to attack mail-in ballots, though Trump and probably most of the White House staff are voting the same way, by absentee mail-in ballot. Trump says there will be vast fraud and misconduct in mail-in ballots. Trump's AG says the same thing. Trump is afraid he's losing. They suggest this fraud is already underway. The fraud. But they come up short to prove anything is fraudulent. When FBI Director Ray testified on the Hill that the fraud in voting is minuscule, Trump says Director Ray didn't know what he was talking about. Listen to what Ray said. Given the, uh, the uh, COVID-19 pandemic, uh, we're seeing many more people vote uh, by mail. As I mentioned, unprecedented numbers of absentee ballots have been asked for in the state of Michigan. So I want to dispel uh, this, uh, some of this drumbeat of misinformation that we're hearing out there. Uh, and so my question is very direct. Is voting by mail secure? Uh, and our role is to investigate the threat actors. Um, now, we uh, have not seen historically uh, any kind of coordinated national voter fraud effort uh, in a major election, uh, whether it's by mail or, or otherwise. We have seen voter fraud uh, at the local level from time to time. Um, and so certainly to change a, a federal election outcome by mounting that kind of fraud at scale would be a major challenge for an adversary. But people should make no mistake, we're vigilant. Uh, as to the threat uh, and watching it carefully because we're in, in right. uncharted new territory. And uh, I think as far as risk assessments of any particular state's processes or systems, I would defer to, uh, to Mr. Cuccinelli and, and THS CISA because that's really more in their lane. Right. But your, your answer is clear. You've not seen any widespread fraud uh, by mail, uh, and it's something the FBI 
watches continuously to make sure that that's not happening. So that's something we would investigate seriously. Absolutely. Aggressively. Almost immediately after Justice Ginsburg died, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell announced he would convene hearings to consider a replacement. Trump announced he wanted a new justice, and he wanted it before the election. Oh, I don't think so. I, we need nine justices. You need that. Uh, with the unsolicited millions of ballots that they're sending, it's a scam. It's a hoax. Everybody knows that. And the Democrats know it better than anybody else. So you're going to need nine justices up there. I think it's going to be very important because what they're doing is a hoax with the ballot. In 2016, when President Obama nominated a judge to fill the vacancy created by the death of Justice Scalia, Senator McConnell said the Senate shouldn't consider the nomination and waited instead, and said it would wait instead until after the presidential election, after the presidential election. The American people should have a voice in the selection of their next Supreme Court justice, he said. Therefore, this vacancy should not be filled until we have a new president. In 2016, again, during the election year, Senator Chuck Grassley, Republican from Iowa, then the Judiciary Committee chair said, a lifetime appointment that could dramatically impact individual freedoms and change the direction of court for at least a generation is too important to get bogged down in politics. The American people shouldn't be not denied a voice. In 2016, Senator Lindsey Graham, Republican from South Carolina, for election this year and the current Judiciary Committee chair said, if an opening comes in the last year of President Trump's term and the primary process has started, we'll wait to the next election. Well, all three of these people and more who said this back in 2016 are saying something different these days. Now, in fact, in truth, President Obama had the power to nominate and rightly expected and demanded that the Senate advise and consent on that nominee, but they didn't act. McConnell's lie in 2016 didn't change the truth that a president could nominate someone. The Constitution doesn't say otherwise. The real question is whether the nomination now, while the people are already voting for the next president, is an abuse of power, as it appears to favor the president personally. So it's, it's about the abuse of power, and we'll talk about that some more. It's not whether the power exists. It is about how you use it. Mr. Trump and Senator McConnell set out to pack the court. They refused to wait upon the election and what the people say as to who the president should be. And Trump racing forward, urging Senate Republicans to fill the seat without delay. I think the process can go very, very fast. McConnell therefore seeks to railroad the Senate judicial confirmation process. Just as McConnell manipulated the Senate to railroad an acquittal at Trump's impeachment trial. It was clear from the outset who Trump wanted. Maybe not the name, but the features of the only acceptable nominee he wanted for that court. The features are obvious. It had to be an ideologue who believed a fecundated ovum is a person, ridiculous, a religious thought, and who disputes the holdings in Griswold against Connecticut. That is, that you can have a birth control pill and it shouldn't be a crime. And Roe v. Wade, that respected a woman's right to be let alone, to control her own body, and to have an abortion. This judicial nominee is also going to be expected to give lip service to stare decisis, legal precedent. But we all know what she really believes, that the nominee will find 
exceptions to Roe v. Wade, to render the Roe v. Wade holding a nullity, and to take us back to that day when women would risk their lives in back alleys while wealthier people could get the abortions that they wanted. Now, how do we know that this is what the nominee should be? Because Trump told us it's so. And while he lies about many things, this is a core issue for Trump on the stump and at his rally, so everybody knows what it is that he wants. Trump's nominee also had to be a product of the Federalist Society, who informed Trump who they want on the court. And he picks from that list after being encouraged to pick one or the other from that list. And the Federalist Society intended to elevate a person who opposes the long-established constitutional doctrine separating church and state embodied in the First Amendment. Judge Amy Comey Barrett, she became the one. Ms. Barrett gave a graduation speech in, speech in 2007 stating, Your legal career is but a means to an end, and that end is building the kingdom of God. No, that's not right. That's not what a lawyer does. That's not what you do in a civil courtroom proceeding. You're not building the kingdom of God. Our Constitution says we the people. There is no reference to God. In fact, any reference to religion is in the First Amendment. And it says the government may not establish religion. You are individually free to believe whatever you want. But the government doesn't establish religion. And we don't have court officers doing that either. Now, this becomes more complicated because Judge Barrett is also a founding member of the People of Praise, a highly authoritarian structure considered an extreme Christian cult by some, a blend of Catholicism and Pentecostalism. They're speaking in tongues. The women are subjects of their husband. The controlling board of the organization is all male. They pay 5% of their income to the support of the organization. And... Uh, Judge Barrett's father and her husband belong to this organization. That's one part of why she's being chosen. Another is that she criticized um, the Affordable Care Act payments for contraception. And listen to the language, though, that she criticized it with. She said it was a grave violation of religious freedom and cannot stand. Well, if the person is not going against their beliefs, why can't insurance pay for contraception? in a country that already has too many people, unwanted children. The court and its justice must be about the law, not about religious belief. The nominee, therefore, will be expected to oppose the Affordable Care Act, and Judge Barrett is on the record opposing Justice Roberts' decision upholding the ACA, the Affordable Care Act. Judge Barrett, Trump's nominee, is ready, willing, and able to put 130 million people at risk with pre-existing conditions for a lack of health care during a pandemic. I'm talking about the, the decision that the court will have to make when they meet and hear arguments later this year. Trump wants his nominee in place to be on that panel, that nine-judge panel, when that case comes up. He wants her approved before the election, so she may participate in the oral argument that Trump seeks to have issued destroying the Affordable Care Act. This last consideration for why he wants this nominee, and it's very likely Trump's first consideration and nothing else is as important, is Trump's insistence that the election will be unfair and the Supreme Court will be hearing the argument and he wants his judge on that court to be there to protect him when that happens.
His principal attack has been the regularity of mail-in ballots, and he wants a Supreme Court nominee who will defend him in the Supreme Court when he loses. He does believe he's losing. He believes he's only got a chance of winning if his endgame mimics Bush's endgame in the 2000 election, and he takes the matter to the Supreme Court with his nominee added to that court to make it a done deal. Associate Justice Breyer has worn like a badge of honor that he wrote a dissent from that decision, an earlier court abused as an institution. Justice Roberts has done what he can to reform the Supreme Court since that decision because it was so transparently political. We don't want to go back to that. So you may ask, what nominee should we be considering? Well, by contrast, it should be an ABA-qualified lawyer or jurist who's no ideologue, independent of any one group, sensitive to the rights of women and every other litigant, respectful of precedent, concerned about health care, and a person who will restore trust to the court that Mr. Trump and Mr. McConnell have, have packed. It should have been a person who wouldn't play the fool to help Trump fix the election in the Supreme Court the way the Bush team did in 2000. Now let's talk about why Trump is abusing power. Many commentators wring their hands and say, how could Trump do this or that? But they never nailed down what's really wrong. What is the express violation that Trump is doing? And in this case, in a constitutional sense, abusing his power. That probably doesn't surprise you that it's an abuse of power, but let's talk about exactly what kind of abuse it is. Stay tuned. As I said, Trump believes he can't win this election. He may be wrong, but he believes it. The polls right now says he's right to be concerned. There's good cause, objective reasons why he should believe he's likely to lose a fair election. There are a lot of people opposing the various devices by which he would make this an unfair election. Will they do their job? Will they succeed? Will it be fair? Now, while the numbers may change, he knows the polls are against him. So he's been doubling down on attacking the election. Trump said, for example, he was doing great in Maine. He always lies, and the liar king was not even close. Biden has a double-digit lead in Maine over Trump. The nomination of a justice invokes the discretion of the senators to advise the president that the nomination is worthy or not worthy of an appointment. But the Republican senators said they would support the nominee to replace Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg before they ever knew who the nominee was. This is a railroad. And we may pay the price for the life of the nominee if they succeed, because it's a life-term appointment, and she's 48. We can expect a circus in the Senate replacing Ginsburg. We started down a path from which we cannot expect any other outcome. Now let's go over this again. Before the judicial nominee was announced or known, before the FBI investigation was conducted, any interview had by any senator of the proposed nominee, any hearing held, the nominee had been approved by Moscow Mitch and his two compliant Republican caucus because Trump needed a stacked court to win the election, perhaps like Bush did in 2000. I doubt that getting the Affordable Care Act victory 
as, is as important as his reelection. Ask yourself what kind of judicial nominee accepts the job in these political circumstances. Let's consider how Trump's conduct measures up to his constitutional duties. In other words, let's consider what I charge is his abuse of power. The drafting and passage of the Constitution in 1787 was behind closed doors and kept secret for years afterwards. But we have both those proceedings now known, as well as the Federalist Papers circulated so the various states could know to be persuaded or not to participate in this new nation of borning. James Madison took notes of the proceedings of the Constitutional Convention, wrote drafts of the Constitution, and of the Bill of Rights later appended, and Madison is therefore considered the father of the Constitution. He wrote passages found in the Federalist Paper to explain the Constitution and its working so the several states would be persuaded to agree to its terms. The different notes are numbered, and the one in particular that I think is important is number 47. Madison says as a first principle of the Constitution that the several departments, legislative, executive, and judiciary, the three departments, they needed to be kept separate and distinct, independent one from the other. Madison said this is an essential precaution in favor of liberty. This young nation didn't trust government to start with. They had rebelled against King George. The Articles of Confederation had not worked because there was no teeth in the Articles to make it work. The concern that was real about any government was the exposure of the essential parts, that's the various three departments, of the edifice to the danger of being crushed by the disproportionate weight of the other parts. So if the judiciary or legislative or executive had a disproportionate effect on the government, then it was compromising this necessary, separate, and independent arrangement. Madison said a real concern was the accumulation of all powers, legislative, executive, and judiciary, in the same hands, whether of one, a few, or many, and whether hereditary, self-appointed, or elective, may justly be pronounced the very definition of tyranny. This was the very definition of tyranny. Some have thrown around the term tyranny without drilling down to consider how it worked or that it was a major concern when creating the Constitution how the three departments would work so there would not be tyranny. Consider how Trump has usurped the powers of the Congress as a separate department, refusing to do what it wanted him to do. And we're talking about the House of Representatives. He is entirely unresponsive because it's dominated by Democrats. Now, by contrast, the Republican senators have been so subservient to the executive, to Trump, they're prepared to clear a nominee and did say so without even knowing who the nominee was when they said they'd confirm the nominee. And, and they said they'd get it done quickly. And they're supposedly trying to get it done before the election on November 3rd. Consider the known facts we've already gone over, that Trump wants the person on the court for his personal advantage in the election to reverse Roe v. Wade and to land the ACA appeal and to get it declared void and unconstitutional. Also, he has an interest himself because if he is going to hold his breath and claim the election was unfair and take it to the Supreme Court, he wants another voice on the Supreme Court that will stand by him. Madison wrote 
Were the federal constitution, therefore, really chargeable with this accumulation of power or with a mixture of powers having a dangerous tendency to such an accumulation, no further argument would be necessary to inspire a universal reprobation of the system. There has been a reprobation for how Trump has done what he has, but the reason it's wrong has not been carefully defined. You know, it's just wrong. We just know it's wrong. Well, but there's a specific reason it's wrong. It's an abuse of the very establishment of the three departments in the Constitution of the United States. Trump has been doing, that is, accumulating the power and usurping the power of the other departments to accomplish his self-serving objectives. Tyranny. In reliance on the observations of Montesquieu, Madison said, there can be no liberty where the legislative and executive powers are united in the same person or body of magistrates. More precisely, he wrote, if the power of judging be not separated from the legislative and executive power, freedom is at risk. Trump has bent the Senate to his will to appoint a judge he wants on the course to rule as he prefers and needs for his election to claim he was robbed and for his political campaign promises ending the ACA. Trump didn't clean out the swamp. He took it over and made it worse. Montesquieu said, when the legislative and executive powers are united in the same person or body, there can be no liberty because apprehensions may arise lest the same monarch or senate should enact tyrannical laws to execute them in a tyrannical manner. What we're seeing with the nomination of Judge Barrett is tyrannical. Madison said in another one of the, the passages, number 51, that it is evident that each department should have a will of its own and consequently should be so constituted that the members of each should have as little agency as possible in the appointment of the members of the others. Of course, it is true that a chief executive has the power to nominate a judge, but the abuse of power in an exertion of that power is an appointment during an ongoing election, when Trump is the candidate, so that he may try to steal the election with his newly minted nominee on the court. Nominated and appointed during the election itself. The notion of due process or fundamental fairness, as some call it, is that a person cannot be a judge in his own case. In other words, the chief executive may not appoint a nominee basically to carry out his wishes in his re-election. It's also abusive because the rush for the appointment is to get his nominee on the court to tip the scales toward the judicial destruction of the Affordable Care Act. It's an abuse of power to seek to make a judicial appointment that Trump may believe is helpful in his re-election effort. Now, now, hopefully this makes clear what people are saying instinctively. That's not right. This is wrong. This is a constitutional violation, again, no surprise, by Trump. But they come on so quickly and in such succession that people sometimes don't analyze what exactly he's doing wrong, whether it's unconstitutional, unlawful, illegal, unethical. He's feathering his own nest, all the various categories of misconduct, all of which he's visited, all of which he's committed. Madison wrote that it is equally evident that the members of each department should be as little dependent as possible on those of the others for the emoluments annexed to their offices. Well, we've seen how Trump has conducted himself. Madison said if, if men were angels, no government would be necessary. 
Trump has treated these constitutional restraints as trivial in his tyrannical regime. Madison stated that the usurpations of the three departments are guarded against by a division of the government into distinct and separate departments. Trump has, however, dominated over and usurped the Congress almost completely, destroying any division between the legislative and the Senate and the executive. Otherwise, Trump at the least blurs plainly with the intention to obliterate the divisions between the executive and the judicial department. Commentators, as I've said, have stumbled looking for the policy or words to describe Trump's abuse in his recent judicial nomination of Judge Barrett. They wring their hands and say he shouldn't do this, but by what standard causing what offense? No one that I've seen anywhere has characterized Trump's misconduct as the abuse of power it is to usurp the independence of the legislative and judicial branches to his own benefit, to steal the election and to win a court case with the nominee he's now racing through Congress, his railroad to confirmation. Let's spend a little time talking about how a judge should assess a case. And that's what we'll be talking about at Judge Barrett's confirmation hearings. Stay tuned. After the Warren Court, conservatives sought a way to interpret the Constitution to discourage the freedoms that the Supreme Court had granted. There were a number of uh, people who tried, but the pioneer in that effort considered the most responsible was Justice Scalia. Before we go on, you should know that Judge Barrett clerked for Justice Scalia, and she said she would interpret the law the way Justice Scalia did. And there's the rub. What Scalia does is called originalism, and that means that all statements in the Constitution must be interpreted based on what the Founding Fathers meant in 1787. You want to subtract that from 2020? This, uh, the alternative manner, other than the way Scalia does it, is to interpret the Constitution as the living Constitution, that is, immersed in today when it's being considered. And I'll get more detail on that. So the originalists say, look at what Madison and Hamilton meant in 1787. But not everyone made notes of what they meant, not the individual members of the Constitutional Convention. And the only notes taken were taken by two, and the principal ones were taken by Madison. So the, and the convention itself may have meant many things. Two towering powers from the Declaration of Independence weren't there. They were off uh, shore seeking funding from foreign powers. So they are of little help except for the co correspondence between Jefferson and Madison. And the two people who were absent were Jefferson and Adams. Jefferson was in France. Adams was in Great Britain. Scalia's interpretation is the original meaning. What did the founders understand was their meaning? So we've seen one problem. Uh, let's consider if we look at what a founder meant in 1787, how he was constrained by his times at the time of the document's imperfect origin. The document had nothing to do with women. They were chattels. Others were slaves. There was, at that time, no question of contraception or abortion raised. There was no question of a national medical insurance program called, for kicks, Jefferson Care instead of Obamacare, nor anything like it. Nor can we overlook the fact that others, not the original founders, have amended the Constitution since. So what people said in 1787 can't have very much bearing on what 
happened when the Civil War amendments were put in place, when slavery was outlawed in the 13th Amendment, when civil rights were guaranteed in the 14th Amendment, when voting rights for persons of color uh, came about in the 15th Amendment. And then back, you know, it was 1920 when women won the franchise, the ability to vote in the 19th Amendment. So where do you look for the original intent? Do you go to 1920 to see what was going on when there was an amendment to, the, amendment to the Constitution. Now, if we wanted to explore the meaning of freedom of the press, we might do better because there was a question then. But even that has changed because of the technology. What do you think social media would have been considered in 1787? Scalia has admitted that he first looks at the text and considers its plain meaning. And that might be fine, but the Constitution has broad terms, including freedom of the press, freedom of religion, establishment of religion, in 1787, a nation thought of guns in the context of militias. Today, the Supreme Court has ruled that they really meant possessing guns uh, was an original right, an individual right. Hmm. The, uh, while we are looking at the Civil War amendments, we don't look at the founders when the amendments didn't exist. And there was a whole series of rights that were incorporated and applied to the states as a result of the 14th Amendment, and no one had considered anything like that. So it feels to me like originalism is more a political argument than it is an actual way to interpret, except to interpret in such a way as to defeat freedoms and rights. Should we consider that what was not cruel and unusual in 1787, floggings, is cruel and unusual in 2020? Scalia said in a debate with Justice Breyer that the Constitution say what was cruel and unusual. It could be anything. A legislature should answer the question, but that misses the point. What does a legislature do? A legislature passes a law presumably on what the majority of the people want. The majority is not necessarily interested in an individual's rights. And that was meant to be remedied by the Bill of Rights. Patrick Henry insisted on the Bill of Rights as a remedy to what a majority government might get wrong. In my opinion, this whole school of interpretation, originalism and textualism, was created to avoid, avoid interpretations that took account of the world and the times we live in. When we don't flog anymore and when choice is a question and medical insurance during a pandemic highly relevant. Justice Stephen Breyer has written to describe what is meant by the Constitution as a living document. He may be less known to more people than Scalia. Uh, I, I don't know if I am so uh, obsessed by him that I know more than others do or not. But he has this marvelous voice, marvelous way of speaking. He's a brilliant justice. He was an Eagle Scout. He, went, he was a Stanford grad. He got Phi Beta Kappa. He followed that up with an Oxford scholarship to Magdalen College. He went to law school at Harvard. He made the Harvard Law Review. He graduated cum laude. He clerked for Justice Abe Force on the Supreme Court. He was a Harvard Law professor. He was a Watergate special prosecutor. He was counsel of the Senate Judiciary Committee. He's the former chief judge for the First Circuit in Boston. And then he joined the Supreme Court in 1994, appointed by President Clinton. Breyer's approach is the living constitution. And he's gone through various formulation to explain it to others so they can apply it. But it goes like this. It's a six-fold inquiry. One, the text. Look at the text. Two, it's his historical context. Three, consider the precedent. Four, consider the tradition. Five, consider its, its purpose. 
Six, consider the consequences of potential interpretations. Now, Scalia might use the first four, but not the last two, not to look at its purpose, not to look at the consequences of potential interpretations. Now, Breyer uh, has, when he lectures, cites the danger of a wrong interpretation. For example, and this is a historic example, the Dred Scott decision, it led to the Civil War. The court ignored the consequences of its decision. Scalia would not have considered that point either, not as he does it today. You know, everybody looks back with 2020 vision and say, I would never have written the, the Dred Scott decision. Well, really, if that was the deal in the Constitution and then there was great uh, conflict between slave and free state, and uh, you thought that that was the agreement that was made, and so you would decide that a person who was a slave was a property and not a free man? That's the question. But the added question of what was its purpose, to treat him as property, and what was the consequence of that to further infuriate the, those who were abolitionists and to stress the problem that individual slaves had and had been resisting in different ways. And it led to a civil war. No light decision, no small thing for failing to understand how to interpret the law. The Federalist Society, the Scalia groupies and Scalia's former law clerk, Judge Barrett, follows Scalia's questionable manner of interpretation. That's a bad idea. But I won't be the one asking Judge Barrett the questions about her cultish roots and this method of interpreting the Constitution. I certainly hope somebody will. I have one last minute breaking story that may be old by the time you hear this podcast. Let me first give you a clue. Stay tuned. Sure enough, the other shoe has finally dropped and more stories will follow. The New York Times is reporting exclusively. They have obtained Donald Trump's tax information extending over more than two decades. They reveal struggling properties, vast write-offs, an audit battle, and hundreds of millions in debt coming due. Think for a second before I say the next sentence. What you pay in taxes. What you paid last year, what you paid this year. Now, Donald Trump, in the year he was a candidate, in the year he was a candidate paid $750 in federal income taxes. In the first year he was in the White House, he paid another $750. Trump made, paid no income taxes at all in 10 of the previous 15 years, largely because he reported losing much more money than he made. Plainly, one of the next questions will be, did he inflate the value of the losses? Did he make up the losses? There's a story about how he spent so many thousands of dollars on his hair, and that became a deduction. Uh, you should try that next time you do it with toothpaste so your teeth don't go black and you say that should be something that should be deducted. Um, polls continue to say Trump is in danger of losing his office. His finances are under stress. He's beset by losses and hundreds of millions of dollars in debt coming due that he has personally guaranteed. This financial genius has got a financial nightmare ahead of him. I see much well-deserved pain and many more disclosures against him if not from him. I'm looking forward to hearing the debate on Tuesday night. How, much, uh, how many people would uh, guess that the first question will be, let me ask you about your taxes. Uh, 
that ought to be something. Well, I hope you enjoyed this discussion. If you haven't subscribed, please do. It doesn't cost anything. Uh, I'll see you next Sunday. In the meantime, be well. Vote if you haven't. Encourage a friend to vote. All the best. Bye-bye.